Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to The New Man, Beyond the Macho Jerk and the New Age Wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Do you get pissy when you do something nice for someone and they don't return the favor? Do you bend over backwards to avoid upsetting your woman, family, or friends? And why do the guys who go out of their way to please everyone always get the raw end of the deal? Today, we're talking with the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, Dr. Robert Glover. How are the macho jerk and the spineless wimp really the same? And what are the four steps you can take to avoid the nice guy syndrome? Listen and find out. Welcome to The New Man. Today, we're talking with Dr. Robert Glover. He's the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, A Proven Plan for Getting What You Want in Love, Sex, and Life. And he's an internationally recognized authority on the nice guy syndrome. Dr. Robert, welcome to the show. Well, uh, good to be here, Trip. So, uh, you know, this this nice guy syndrome, I mean, w- w- why should the guy stuck in traffic right now care? What, what, what is it? What are we talking about? When we're talking about nice guy syndrome, we're talking about guys because of, of information they internalize into their brain, usually at a pretty young age, don't believe they are okay just as they are. And they tend to believe they have to have everybody's approval and they have to do everything right in order for things to go the way they want in life. Okay. And so what does that actually look like? What does the nice guy look like? What are you talking about? How would we know, okay, that guy's got the nice guy syndrome? Okay. Yeah. If you look around, he's a guy at work that's trying to make everybody happy. He's, he's you know, uh, kissing everybody's backside. But at the same time, you can't depend on him. He won't follow through. He'll tell you one thing one time, tell somebody else the other thing. So you can't depend on on him. So he's kind of a yes guy, a yes man in that, in that regard. Whatever it takes to make everybody happy and avoid all conflict in any situation. In in family, you might uh, have a family member who uh, he's always trying to please his wife or his girlfriend. The woman runs the show. He has no backbone. He's always saying, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear. And the woman just walks all over him. Okay. And, and what you're saying is that the underneath that, and we'll get into this in a little bit, is that things just aren't okay as they are. He's not okay as they are. He's got to bend over backwards in order to get somebody's approval. And it sounds like he's just in fear of any kind of confrontation or conflict. Well, you've you've nailed it because one of the things I frequently tell people about the nice guy syndrome is that it's an anxiety-based disorder. 
everything the nice guy does is that he's trying to do what I call managing his anxiety. Now, when I speak of managing anxiety, and we'll talk more about this in contrast to soothing our anxiety, but managing our anxiety is when we try to get things, people, or situations outside of us to be different so that we won't feel anxious anymore. So that means if somebody's angry, we try to get them to quit being angry. I, I say in my book that nice guys are afraid of two kinds of emotions, uh, their own and everybody else's. So, so uh, strong emotions make them anxious. Conflict makes them anxious. Disapproval makes them anxious. Doing something less than perfectly makes them anxious. Being found out makes them anxious. Being rejected makes them anxious. Looking foolish makes them anxious. So everything a nice guy does is he's trying to manage that anxiety by trying to orchestrate everything around him. And, and basically, he operates on, on something that I call covert contracts. And, and, and well, I'll put this out there and we can expand it as we talk. But nice guys have three fundamental covert contracts. Now, a covert contract is basically an unconscious agreement that says, if I do this, then everybody else will do this in return. It's an if-then proposal. Okay. And for nice guys, they believe if I'm a good guy, everybody will like me. If I meet everybody else's needs, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. And if I do everything right, then I'll have a problem-free, smooth world. Well, it just sounds like a recipe for disappointment on all three fronts, because as you said, these are covert. They're not explicit. They're not out in the open. So he's just expecting people to respond to his actions. Is that right? That's exactly right, because not only is he usually unconscious to his covert contracts, like that if he holds the door open for somebody that in his mind, he's thinking that person will smile at him, think he's a good person and appreciate him. That's a covert contract. Okay. Now, the other person doesn't know that was expected of them either. The door was just held open and they walked through it. You know, they didn't know that guy was expected to be thought of well for doing that. Right. Okay. Right. Now, if you manifest that in every aspect of life, all the way from work and career to interpersonal relationship to just living up to your, your full potential and passion in life, these covert contracts put a lid on everything. And as you said, they're a recipe for disaster because the nice guy usually is completely unaware that he's doing it or the reason. You would not believe how many men, when they read my book or listen to a podcast like this is like the light bulb goes off and they go, it all makes sense now. Yeah. Cause they're, they're at home and they're thinking, gosh, why am I so disappointed in life? I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And nobody's giving me shit in return. And, but at the same time, it's like, well, you're all this stuff's in the, in the closet, so to speak. It's all buried. What, what you, this, these contracts, no wonder why you're disappointed. And, and, and for typical with nice guys, when what they're doing isn't working, it's like they're, they're following a roadmap of Cleveland, but they live in Seattle. And they <laughs> believe that the roadmap should take them to the, to the downtown library in Seattle while they're following a map from Cleveland. And when it doesn't work, instead of going, huh, I think I need a different map. This one doesn't work. They just keep trying harder to get the same one to work, which makes them more frustrated, more resentful, and often more passive aggressive, uh, less dependable. And, and they often, as I said, they fail to live up to their potential 
and working career. They either tend to avoid relationships or the ones they get into tend to be frustrating for them. Absolutely. Uh, and I can understand why, uh, just based on what you said. But if, if there's the nice guy, you know, if this is his answer to, to helping him deal with life's problems, the flip side isn't to be a dick or to be a jerk. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I love that you asked that question because everybody asks that question. Um, yeah. So, you know, people will say, well, why would you write a book and call it No More Mr. Nice Guy? Why would we want to teach men to be not nice? In other words, why would we teach men to be a jerk? Yeah. And so people often ask me the question, and I think they often know enough to realize that maybe I'm teaching something other than men becoming jerks. But for the nice guy themselves, actually, everybody else that, that sees this gets the concept quickly. Nice guys sometimes are a little bit slower on the uptake because, again, they're so married to their roadmap, to their paradigm, to their covert contracts, that to do anything different just feels totally overwhelming. So now here's here's what, how I explain it. The jerk and the nice guy are fundamentally the same. Now, nice guys don't want to believe that, but they are because I'm a recovering nice guy. And one of the things I always believed is that I was fundamentally different from other men. Hmm. I was different from my father in, the, in that I wasn't angry or moody or narcissistic or self-absorbed or selfish. Uh -huh. I thought I was different from other men. I, I grew up during the 60s and 70s, and I listened to, so, to a few angry feminists, to basically probably a few lesbians that hated men talk about all the bad men out in the world and how the patriarchy was so evil and, and hurt all the women in the world. And I thought, I don't want to be like those bad men right. that I heard a few angry women complain about. So I prided myself of being different from other men. But the truth is a nice guy and the asshole jerk are pretty much the same because they, they're both just trying to manage their anxiety. Wow. So I, I refer to the nice guy and the asshole jerk as both first order men. And as first order men, they're trying to manage their anxiety through one of four mechanisms. And these are the basic fight, flee, freeze, or caretake. And a lot of animals do one of those four things when they're frightened or when they're stressed or when they're anxious. Mm. So the asshole jerk to manage his anxiety, remember managing anxiety is trying to get things, people, and situations outside of you to be different so you don't feel anxious. He manages his anxiety by dominating people, by controlling people, by being a fighter, by being the jerk, and by scaring people into being a certain way so he doesn't have to feel his anxiety. Okay. He's actually just a scared little boy. Got it. The nice guy, on the other hand, rather than trying to be the fighter, he goes to the other side of the spectrum and he either freezes or flees or caretakes. That is, he keeps a low profile. He he stays under the radar or he doesn't doesn't rock the boat or he, he doesn't do anything that will make anybody upset. Or he tries to – if somebody is upset, he tries to get them through being upset and trying to make them happy and please them. But they're both just trying to control the situation, things, and people outside of them to control their inner anxiety. Wow, this is just fascinating that this the two sides of the same coin because I just imagine the nice guy is doing everything possible to not be the jerk. And, and, and basically, that means that not being a jerk is the only roadmap he has for life. Right. And not being a jerk isn't a very good roadmap. And, and I'll hear when men do kind of come across what I'm teaching and they first they get it. They, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I, I don't want to be the passive nice guy that everybody walks on. And I don't want to be the jerk, the asshole that, 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 you know, intimidates everybody. And they'll say something like, you know, I want I want to find a happy middle ground between the two. 
And I tell them that doesn't work because I say that there's absolutely no tipping point between two dysfunctional extremes. So I tell them we have to become a different kind of guy rather than this first order male that's trying to manage his anxiety by controlling the things, people, or situations outside of him. And I said we have to become what I call the second order male or in my book, I refer to it as an integrated male. And we do that by doing a few things differently. And this is basically what I teach men in in my groups and my workshops and my classes and seminars is those four fundamental things to do different in order to be a completely different kind of guy. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, just like, obviously we're not going to transform someone into uh, this integrated male just in, in 10 minutes, but you know, what does that workshop look like? What is, what's the high level version? How does a guy become an integrated male? Okay, if I was going to give you the mini workshop here of becoming an integrated male, there's there, there's four fundamental steps to it. And these aren't just things we can just flip on or just go do a weekend workshop and they'll be different because we're actually working at rewiring deepest parts of our brain that have stored up both our emotional memories and our emotional reactions to them from when we were two or three years old. Okay. Most of us are reacting to life situations with strategies we developed at three, five years old. So basically, we're going to grow up. We're going to mature by by doing these four things, and we're going to spend the rest of our life growing up and maturing. So the four things. Number one is consciousness. Um, Now, consciousness, my definition of it is, is just the ability to be an observer of yourself in the moment. Now, we humans are part of a small group of animals. I I think, I don't know, there's four or five, six animal species that can observe themselves, that have some degree of consciousness. Now, that means that we've developed parts of our brain that go beyond just the basic reptilian brain and the mammalian brain. We've developed parts of our brain that can actually observe ourselves. We can observe what we think. We can sit and watch ourselves thinking, going, wow, that's kind of a bizarre thing to be thinking. We can observe our feeling states. We go, I'm feeling kind of sad today. I'm feeling kind of lonely today. We can observe that. Most animals can't. They just just feel and then react to their feelings. We can observe our behaviors. We can say, wow, that that was a pretty effective thing to do right there. Or, oh, man, that, that, that wasn't very effective of all. I think next time I'll do it differently. Okay, it's that that evolved frontal cortex of our brain that allows us to be conscious of ourself as we're actually living in our our life. Now, what I find that most people's when they're down there in that first order place, when when they're trying to manage anxiety, all that all they feel is anxious. Their thermostat is kicked in. Their anxiety thermostat says, you know, scream or yell, or their anxiety thermostat says lay low, or their anxiety anxiety thermostat says go try to get them to quit being mad Mm. and they just do that with no observation of self they just think in that moment it makes sense to be behaving that way it's like they're hijacked by this by this mechanism within instead of saying like well whoa there goes that mechanism it wants me to go do this and they're just observing it exactly and that's just such a great way to put it where you can just observe your lizard brain saying try to go get that person to not be mad anymore and you can go wow I was just trying to get them to quit being angry because I'm I'm feeling anxious. We mm. can observe that and that consciousness. Now, the more we become conscious of what some of our own lizard brain, childhood, you know, ingrained behaviors are. Um, for example, I know that I, I, I try to be funny to relieve my anxiety. 
mm-hmm. or I try to create order around me to, to relieve my anxiety, or I try to act smart to relieve my anxiety, or I try to, you know, soothe other people's feelings to, to manage my anxiety. I know those things about me. Right. And so if I find myself in one of those states, okay, I can do something different now. So it's the consciousness that allows us to apply the other three steps that we're going to talk about. But none of the other three steps are very effective without some degree of consciousness, without some ability to be an observer and a knower of ourselves. Yeah, it's like if no one's at the wheel of the car, then it's just it's on. It's just crazy. It's going on. You know, it's on a wild ride. But somebody needs to be in the seat of the car to then take these other directions that you're going to lay out. Exactly. Okay. Okay, so number one, being conscious of ourselves. Now, we won't be conscious all the time. Uh, There's a a great teacher. Maybe you've interviewed him. Maybe you're aware of him. A guy named David Data has written the book, Way of the Superior Man. Absolutely. And and I've heard him say different times, different contexts, something along the lines, you know, you're going to lose consciousness 100,000 times a day. Just get it back 100,000 times a day. Right. So even being conscious that we're going to go unconscious is part of our evolution and mm-hmm. part of us letting go of any kind of judgment or self-criticism that we went unconscious. We're all going to do it. Okay, just get it back. Become right. conscious again. Right. Okay. So consciousness, number one. Number two is something called differentiation. Now, differentiation is the ability to ask yourself, what feels right to me? What do I want? What seems right? What's important to me? Now, this is a process that begins in most human beings around the age two. And unfortunately, to tell you what our culture thinks about differentiation, we call the beginning of the process the terrible twos. Mm. And, and that, that's a terrible name for the terrible twos right. because differentiation is the basis of all maturity and adulthood and, and uh, productive living. But when a child begins saying, no, myself, I want or throwing a little temper tantrum when they don't get their way and we call that terrible, that's the mistake that we adults have because most of us grow up. I won't go far into this, but most of us grow up in what's called a fused family system where in a fused family family system, everybody's supposed to think alike, act alike, want the same things, and be there to help manage the anxiety of the most anxious person in that family system. Wow, because I could just imagine that, you know, he doesn't ever, this, the child never gets the chance to say, hey, this is what I want. He just turns in like, well, what's going to have me, I want to make sure that everything's okay. He defaults to kind of more of a superficial level of what he thinks is, is going to make it okay. And that's where he heads down the nice guy path. But what you're saying is like, what's underneath that? What is it that you really want? Yes. And, and what I find working and you're, and you're exactly right. You've nailed exactly of how that process begins in the young child. So this young boy is saying, oh, it makes mommy upset when I do this. So I better not do that. So mommy won't be upset at me. He's on his way to being a nice guy. He's now he's no longer differentiated. He's now back into that fused system of trying to make everybody around them happy to maintain the, the anxiety homeostasis in that system. Right. So so. What happens then, of course, then he grows up and, and he co-creates those kind of systems where he's trying to figure out what everybody wants and become that so that nobody feels any anxiety. And then he feels like he can have this smooth, problem-free life and be loved and get his needs met. 
Now, uh, unfortunately, what happens is all of his wants and needs and desires have to go underground, and he either has to deny them, be oblivious to them, or they, they, they usually sneak out in some hidden way. And in most men I work with, usually around porn, fantasy, masturbation, and stuff like that. You know, I, I, this is so powerful because I talk to so many guys that have run the script, so to speak. They did what the family, what they were supposed to do. They went to the college and married the girl and had the kid and got the job and all that kind of stuff. And then they're, they're like, well, wait a second, why am I miserable? And because somewhere along the way, they, they didn't listen to what they really wanted to this, this deeper knowing. And, and you're saying that it goes all the way back to probably being two years old where they quit listening to what they really wanted. Exactly. So here we are as adults. And, and I tell people there's only two ways for you to be integrated and differentiated in life. And that is to number one, ask yourself, what do I want? What feels right? And number two, do it. Now, if you never even ask yourself what feels right to you, which is true for most nice guys, and because of that, most of the men that I, that I call nice guys, I say it's a misnomer because they're anything but nice for a number of reasons. One is that they, they're so resentful and so frustrated, their, their anger and their frustration builds up, and they're often very passive-aggressive, very indirect. You can't trust them. But if they're always you know, kind of wetting their finger, holding it up to see which way the wind is blowing, you can't trust them. Yeah. They, they have no integrity. They have no base, no, no sense of self. So until a man can ask himself what feels right to me, what seems like the right thing to do in this situation, and, and as you become a more integrated male, you also include your loved ones and the planet in that equation as well. What feels right to me? What well, feels right to just not throw this crap on the ground to pollute the planet? You know, you, it, we become a, a much broader thinker in terms of... Of, of integrity. So we ask ourselves that question. And then number two, we do it. Yeah. Cause I could imagine, well, the nice guys think, well, if I do it, I'm going to rock the boat. A, you know, I'm going to push people away or I'm going to scare somebody. Uh, and I'm just being selfish. There's this, there's this notion that I'm just being selfish. If I, if I do something just for me and, but the, the flip side is that he's more trustable. He's more exactly. trustworthy. If, if, uh, if he's speaking up for what he wants, um, I know that if we get into a, a predicament or whatever, that he's going to speak up for himself, that I don't need to take care of him. And you don't have to guess and you won't be surprised when you find out weeks or months or years later, he was pissed off at you because he didn't get what he wanted, but he never asked for it. I, you know, I just want the guy out there to, to listen. It's a service. It's a gift for you to speak up for what you want. And to do it and to and to go after it. You're serving the rest of us if you speak up for what you want and you go after it. Exactly. We're speaking about the fundamentals of maturity. And, and you mentioned the word selfish. And I often tell the guys I work with, when I look up selfish in the dictionary, I want to see your picture. Now, I'm not talking about being narcissistic or absorbed. And again, we often get black and white about this. We say, well, if you're asking, what do I want? That means that you don't care about anybody else and you're being selfish and it's the me generation and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. No. If you can ask yourself first, what do I want? What feels right to me? And if you have the evolved maturity to look at the big picture and say, and what's important to my loved ones and what's important to my planet, then 
you can actually make very, very evolved decisions about how to live your life. And at times you might even consciously decide to sacrifice what's most important to you for the benefit of somebody you love. Now you're doing it though very consciously and from an integrated place where you already asked yourself, am I okay with making this trade-off? Yeah, because the nice guy just automatically bypasses himself in that equation. Whereas exactly. if he does it consciously, it's it's a you know what this is worth it for me. I know that I'm going to sacrifice this part for for the for the greater good here. But the nice guy just says, uh, "Screw what I want. Uh, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to keep the the, the boat from rocking." Exactly. So if your differentiated self actually makes you a better partner, a better citizen, uh, a better lover, because you've asked yourself first, what do I want? What feels right to me? And you have the emotional maturity to consider the well-being of the people around you as well. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so then what's next on the path? Number three is self-soothing. Because to to be able to do these things, you have to learn to soothe your anxiety from from within. So differentiation really becomes powerful when you can ask yourself what feels right to you and then hold on to that even when it feels like there's pressure from outside of you to give up your stance or pressure from inside of you, i.e. through usually your own neurotic guilt and anxiety to give it up. Yeah. And, and, I, and I found that this whole thing around neurotic guilt, neurotic guilt always arises out of fused family systems to where you believed you had done something wrong if you didn't give everybody else what they wanted. Mm. Mm. Now, this neurotic guilt will drive us to lose our integrity and to give up our differentiated self because we don't like feeling anxious and we act out of neurotic guilt, not because we truly have done something wrong and we truly need to change our behavior. Or we truly need to make amends. Neurotic guilt is, is just another anxiety management tool. I don't want anybody upset at me, so I better not take that vacation after all because people might be upset at me if I take that vacation. Right. And there's nothing wrong with the vacation. Uh, and, it, I, I, you know, when I talk to guys and they start to implement some of this stuff in their life, they're going to be tested. They don't realize that it's not just this, you know, the yellow brick road all the way down to the to the to the wizard. It, it, there are tests along the way. And uh, but that doesn't mean that what they want is wrong. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Because the true definition of differentiation is when you ask yourself what feels right to you, do it and then hold on to yourself when you're tested. Now, again, the test can come from outside of you. Sometimes the test comes from inside of you. And sometimes the test coming from outside of you, nobody's really even upset at you. Um, It's kind of like the proverbial, you know, the guy's in a relationship and uh, his buddies ask him to go out and have a beer on Friday night. And he tells his girlfriend or his wife, hey, I'm going out Friday night to have beer with the buddies. And then she says, oh, yeah, sure, fine. And then Friday night he's going out and she goes, where are you going? And he goes, well, I told you I'm going out to have beer tonight with my buddies. And she gets that look in her eye and she goes, oh, do you really have to go tonight? Mm. Now, the differentiated man smiles, looks her back in the eye, puts his hand on the small of her back, pulls her in gently and says, oh, yeah, I have to go out. But when I come back, it'll all be worth it. 
Nice. And and but what happens with the non-differentiated guy? He thinks the woman is saying, "You're not supposed to leave," or "I'm going to be mad at you if you leave," or "You're going to pay a price if you leave." But the truth is, she's just being feminine, and she's just feeling the loss of connection with you, or projecting the loss of connection with you, and pouting a little bit. And then when you go out and you come home, she looks up from the covers and smiles and said, "Did you have a good time?" Yeah. <laughs> and you say, "Yeah," and it's just beginning, baby. Yeah. So you that differentiation sometimes that pressure we feel like there's pressure from outside of us to give it up and oftentimes that's just our our own anxiety inside most people really do want us to be happy and do what feels right for ourselves yeah i think guys are making mountains out of molehills here and they're interpreting signals from the world as as indicators that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing and what you're saying is like you know what they're just little tiny tests and it's possibly your interpretation that's turning it into a situation where they collapse uh, exactly instead of you know just because everyone's like hey go out and have a good time doesn't mean that they don't want you to do that. Yeah. So again, yeah, just, just being able to soothe yourself and, and, and maybe we, in a minute, we can come back and talk a little bit about some things that, that your listeners can do to soothe themselves in these situations. Because what I found in working with nice guys, I don't care if we're talking about work and career issues. I don't care if we're talking about dating and approaching women issues. I don't care if we're talking about being in a relationship. Uh, the, the topic that guys want to keep coming back and talk about over and over and over again is they'll say, hey, can we talk about that self-soothing thing again? Um, because because again, if we can't soothe our anxiety, our only alternative is to just keep doing our old nice guy patterns as a way to manage our anxiety. Okay, got it. Okay, and then what's uh, what's number four? Number four is the letting go of attachment to outcome. Uh, the Buddha said, I'm paraphrasing along the lines that that attachment is the cause of all suffering, and and my um, corollary to that is attachment is the cause of all anxiety. Mm. It's when we get attached to wanting things to be a certain way or not be a certain way that we get anxious. Mm -hmm. So the more we can consciously let go of attachment. In fact, when we're feeling anxious, one of the and if we're conscious that we're feeling anxious, and we're all going to feel anxious if we're out of our comfort zone, if we're stretching ourselves, if we're at our edge in life, we're going to feel anxious. And so if we feel the anxiety, if we're conscious of it, we can then ask ourselves, okay, what am I attached to right now? Well, I'm attached to not wanting to look foolish, or I'm attached to not wanting my boss to be mad at me, or I'm attached to wanting my wife to want to have sex with me tonight when we go to bed. That's what's making me anxious. Mm. Okay. If we can be conscious of that, we can go, okay, take a breath. Let go of that attachment to the best of our ability. Now, again, this is confusing to many men. So say, are you saying you should never want anything or you should never have a goal or never have a passion? No, I'm not saying that at all. It's just the emotional attachment to a specific outcome will always cause you to suffer and will always cause you to feel anxious. That's all. Yeah. It also creates like a tunnel vision, too. It's kind of the only thing you can see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, amazing. Well, I'm just saying, yeah, because I, I talked to um, a, a person on the phone earlier today, and and um, and it was actually a woman, and, and her husband just died. Mm. And she says, well, I've, I've got to figure out how to go make a living now and, and what kind of job I want. And I said, well, let me suggest something different. How about every day for the next week, you just get up and everything you do, you do with passion. Just everything. Don't dread anything. Don't and just everything you do, whether it's brushing your teeth, driving the kids to school, do it with joy and abundance and passion. 
And I said, quit trying to ask yourself, what kind of career do I need to find? Because that puts that tunnel vision on. You're attached now. Mm. But if you live your life with this abundance, this joy, this, this passion with everything you do every day, all kinds of interesting doors open up that you wouldn't have seen if you had those blinders on of, I've got to figure out what kind of job I got to get. That's a huge, huge turn for a guy because they hear this, don't get attached thing. So they like stuff the desire. They stuff that part of them that is needed to, to really make change and do really cool, wonderful things in the world. And that's what we're saying. Like, don't stuff that. Bring that out into the world. Live from that place. But don't just watch where it goes from being committed or passionate to something to being attached and kind of like, I'm just imagining like this, like white knuckled, like, oh, my God, I better have this or it's just not. It's yeah. like a neediness, you know? Yeah, there's a guy. I'm, I'm down in Puerto Vallarta to Mexico right now. I've been here for almost three months and I'm going to start splitting my year between Seattle and Puerto Vallarta. And there's a guy down here. He's a massage therapist. He stands on a corner kind of, you know, waiting for people to come get massages. And I've, I, I talk to him whenever I pass him and I've gotten to know him. And he was telling me the other night about this woman who walks by. She's, he says she's gorgeous. He's just so attracted to her. And, he, and for two years, she's been walking by him and he's never started a conversation with her. And, and he's got her on this pedestal. He's in love with her. And I said, oh man, you're in big trouble. I said, <laughs> because you are so attached to, to some kind of outcome with her and you, that puts you so high on a pedestal that, that you, it makes you so anxious, you're never going to talk to her. And if you do, it'll just be something silly mm. if you ever do get some words out of your mouth. And I said, you got to take her off the pedestal. You got to let go of the attachment. And I said, the way to start doing that, I said, the rule that I give men is that you can't spend more time thinking about a woman than you've actually spent with her in her presence. Wow. And because a lot of a lot of single guys do that, they get attached yeah. to a specific woman and go, oh, I wish he could be my girlfriend. I wish this. I wish that. And, and they'll spend years being attached and obsessed to a woman that they don't even talk to or they don't ask out or they don't create some tension with. And, and, and they just have so much anxiety that they never will approach her because they're so attached to it. Yeah. And I've spoken with women and asked them, like, what's it like to be put on a pedestal? And a lot of women are like, I, they don't like it. It's, it's basically, oh, it. yeah, it's like, the, well, I, he doesn't see me as a human being anymore. Just sees me as this object, essentially. And that, that's exactly true. And I'll tell women that guys do that, that we put them up there on this pedestal. And women will look at me with this confused look in their eye and they go, why do they do that? <laughs> <laughs> and because the women are thinking, I'm just a silly little moody girl. Why yeah. does he have me so high on a pedestal? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. So those are the four things. And, and again, the, the, this isn't like some magic formula. It's not a switch you're going to throw. It's something that we will keep evolving into for the rest of our life. The, the, the consciousness, being an observer of ourself. Number two, the differentiation, asking ourselves what feels right to me. What do I want? Number three, soothing yourself enough to hold on once you've asked yourself what feels right, even if it feels like there's pressure from outside or pressure from the inside of you because of your anxiety. And then number four, Letting go of our attachment to anything in this world, just letting life be what it is, enjoying the abundance, the joy, uh, the serendipity of this life that, that we have all around us. Being playful, staying curious, you know, that's a oh, great way to yeah. great, great way to yeah. approach things versus this like, oh, my God, I got to get it right. So, well, those that's a lot of information. So what's one thing that the guy can do today uh, that's that'll help him start to get some momentum here? 
Well, uh, let me just throw out a couple of, of pretty easy things. One is uh, a self-soothing thing, and that is breathe. When we get anxious, we quit breathing. We really do. Our breath gets shallow. We hunch up. We get tight, and it, it restricts the oxygen flow in our blood. CO2 goes up, and we actually that actually raises our internal stress level, and it makes our brain begin to shut down. So I'm down here in Mexico, consciously challenging myself, trying to learn a foreign language. Um, uh, I'm a smart guy, but I don't learn languages easily, but I'm doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. Man, every time I get stressed about a, a speaking conversation, I'm trying to carry on a conversation in Spanish. I find myself tightened up, clenched. I breathe, I relax my shoulders, I let some air in, I remind myself I'm just a child learning a new language. Mm. So I breathe, I, I give myself a more realistic state of mind. I can handle it, I don't have to do it perfect. I'm just a child, nobody expects perfection. And that breathing lets me kind of just let go of the attachment that I've got to do this perfect and I got to get it right. Excellent. Excellent. And you said you had another another practice? And the other thing is something that I mentioned just a little bit earlier that I was talking with, with this client earlier today. And, and that is for the next week, stop doing anything you're not doing with passion and start doing everything you do with passion. I don't care if it's brushing and flossing your teeth. I don't care if it's shaving. I don't care if it's driving to work. I don't care if it's filing your taxes late. <laughs> do it with passion. Um, every day when you get up, say, all right, this is going to be a great day. How am I going to live it to its fullest? Okay, I've got seven phone sessions and an interview today. Going to be a great day. I got up and went to the fish market this morning. I bought some fresh uh, shrimp. I'm going to make some fajitas this afternoon. I'm helping people all over the world today. I'm excited that technology lets me do what I do in a beautiful paradise. The sun is shining. Everything I'm going to do today, I'm going to do with, with a sense of abundance and gratitude and passion. So find that silver lining, even if you got some clouds in your sky and focus on that versus the, the, the cloud, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, and if there's things you're doing and you're miserable doing them, you hate doing them, stop doing them or find a way to do them with passion. That will this one little piece right here will radically change your life within a week. I promise you, if you stop doing anything, you're not doing passionately. Don't dread anything in your life. Dread attracts that kind of negativity to you. And then it permeates everything. Look forward to everything with an oh golly, oh boy, I get to do this today. Wow. I just, I want to do that. Here are the big takeaways from this show. Number one, the nice guy does whatever he can to avoid strong emotions. He's super anxious and his efforts to manage himself, others, and the world around him have him show up as an unreliable kiss ass. Sadly, he's a guy without a spine stuck in the nice guy syndrome. Number two, the nice guy creates what are called covert agreements. That means these agreements aren't explicit. For example, if Ted lends his lawnmower to me and says, I don't owe him anything, that's the explicit agreement. However, if Ted lends his lawnmower to me and subconsciously expects me to compensate in some way without telling me, he's making a covert agreement. He's setting himself up for disappointment and resentment. And chances are, he'll blame me and the world for his problem. 
Nice guys base their lives around these covert agreements, and the result is an incredibly frustrating and disappointing life. They believe that if they just play the good guy, the world will treat them as such. If they meet everyone else's needs, then everyone else will return the favor without him needing to ask. The resulting disappointment has the nice guy avoiding relationships and becoming passive-aggressive. It negates his ability to live up to his potential. Number 3. To avoid being a nice guy, it doesn't mean that you become a jerk. In fact, Robert says that the jerk and the nice guy are both trying to do the same thing, but through different means. They're both trying to control themselves, others, and their surroundings. They're both dysfunctional. The way out isn't to find a happy medium between the two, it's to grow into a more mature version of the man you are. Number four, there are four steps to become what Robert calls the integrated male. The first step, consciousness, awareness. The integrated male is able to see that he's trying to run his scheme to control others. He's able to catch himself and choose a different action. He's not hijacked by his emotional need to avoid anxiety. Second, the integrated male is differentiated. He's able to ask himself, what do I really want? What feels right to me in this situation? In other words, he's able to distinguish his own wants, needs, and desires from others and his own internal drive to make everything okay. He can still be considerate, but he doesn't abandon who he really is. Third, the integrated male is able to self-soothe. Like a good sailor, he's able to ride the sea when it gets a bit rough. He's able to hold on to what he wants when the outside world or his own anxiety within is pressuring him to cave. Again, like a good sailor, he's able to hold his course when the seas are challenging him. And fourth, the integrated male is able to let go of his neediness or attachment to how things should be. He doesn't go into denial. He accepts his circumstances and continues forward. Coming from a place of abundance, joy, and passion allows him to pursue what he really wants without falling into the trap of fear or attachment. He's flexible and even playful in his endeavors. He knows that deep down, he's going to be fine no matter what. So where can we find out more about you, your work, the coaching, or the, in the, uh, the workshops that you have? Best way to find all of my materials, go to my website, nomoremrniceguy.com. I'll spell it out. That's N-O-M-O-R-E-M-R-N-I-C-E-G-U-Y.com. No more Mr. Nice Guy.com. I teach online classes on dating. I teach online classes uh, for men on relationships, how to set the tone and take the lead and apply these four principles we've been talking about in their relationships. And I teach an online class on living up to your potential in work and career. I also do um, long distance uh, coaching and counseling over uh, Skype. Um, and uh, when I'm back in Seattle for six months, I do uh, men's groups there. And I do some once a month and some uh, just weekend workshops and seminars there as well. Very, very cool. Sounds like there's lots of different ways to interact with you and and get the benefits of working with you. Um, Dr. Robert Glover, I'm so glad you could take the time to talk today. You just delivered a ton of great value to the listener, and I appreciate you uh, being on the show. Thanks for the invitation. I've had a great time. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.